Galatians chapter 2. Let's just read the first 10 verses, and that's what we're going to go through tonight. Then after 14 years, I, being Paul, went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But this occurred because of false brethren, secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the circumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who works effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, that is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. I've kept in file an illustration that I had for many years called the Meeting of the Board. It's a modern-day Last Supper. And the illustration shows how tradition can sometimes eclipse the truth. They can collide with each other. The meeting begins by Peter. This is the Last Supper. These are the apostles, Jesus, in the upper room. The first one is Pete, and Pete says, that's Peter, this meeting has been called at the request of Matt, John, Tom, and little Jim. Bart, that's Bartholomew, would you open up with prayer? Bart, Almighty God, we ask your blessing on all that we do and say and earnestly pray that you will see our side as your side. Amen. Pete. Jesus, we've been following you around for some time, and we're getting concerned about the attendance. Tom, how many were on the hill yesterday? 37. Pete continues, this is getting to be ridiculous. You're going to have to pep things up, Jesus. We expect things to happen. John, I'd like to suggest you pull off some more miracles. That walking on the water bit was the most exciting thing I've ever seen. But only a few of us saw it. Now, if a thousand or so had a chance to witness it, we would have had more on the hill than we could handle. Little Jim, I agree. Those healing miracles are terrific, but only a limited number really get to see what's happened. Let's have a little more water to wine, more fish and chips. It never hurts to fill their stomachs. Still more storms, Jesus. Give more signs. That's what the people need. Pete, 
Right. And another thing, publicity is essential. You tell half the people you cure to keep it quiet. Let the word out. Matthew. I'm for miracles, but I want to hear a few more stories I can understand. You know, this, those who have ears to hear, let them hear bit, just clouds the issue. You got to make it clear so most of us can have stuff to go home with. Big Jim. I'd like to offer an order of service. First a story, then a big miracle followed by an offering, then maybe sing or something like a poem followed by a small miracle to bring him back next time. Oh yeah, you could pray if you'd like. Tom, we got to do something. Jim, that's for sure. The attendance has been awful. Judas, I'd like to say if we're going to continue to meet in this upper room, we ought to do something about this carpet. I am not a traditionalist. I think you have figured that out by now if you've come for any length of time. For some of you who are traditionalists, I bother you. I know that I do. Because non-traditionalists bother traditionalists just as traditionalists can sometimes rub non-traditionalists the wrong way. There can be a collision. Although I do understand the allure. I come from a traditional church background. And I know that having certain traditions, certain musical sounds, certain sights, smells, can be comforting. It provides, as we mentioned in the interview time, parameters of safety, a wall, reference point. It's something we're used to. We've always done it that way. And so when we get into, ah, oh, yeah, that's the way God likes it. Because that's the way we like it. There's nothing wrong, as we mentioned, with tradition. Paul even says we ought to keep the ones he passed down, but the danger is, like here, when tradition can fly in the face of biblical truth. When I came to Christ, I went back to the church that I was raised in. I was raised a Roman Catholic, most of you know that. I came to believe as a child that the only people going to heaven were Roman Catholics. It was the only true church on earth. Oh, there were other religions, and there were even other Christians, but we were the chosen ones. So when I came to Christ at age 18, I went back to the Catholic church, and I knew there were some problems with it, but I was determined I was going to change it. I was going to be like the Catholic Messiah. I was going to come in and it was just going to be a great, like the second Martin Luther, a great reformation, a great change, but this time from within. There it is, God's speaking to us. Let's see, did I leave something out here? As a child, I began questioning my faith, questioning why Protestants were not saved, as I was taught. So I went to my priest in our CCD classes, our catechism classes, I was in high school, and I had all sorts of questions, and I bothered the priest greatly. 
Because every week, I, he said, are there any questions? And I'd always raise my hand. So pretty soon, he like, wouldn't even look toward my direction. <laughs> Over here. And I had questions, and I'd ask them publicly. I said, now there's a church right down the street from my house. It's a Presbyterian church. Why can't I fellowship there on Sunday? Because you're Catholic. Well, I know, but I'm Catholic because I was raised Catholic. I was born Catholic. It's my tradition. It's my composition in my family. But there are people who are Protestants. I've talked to them. They seem to talk the same kind of stuff we're talking about, but this is closer to my house. The answers I got weren't very satisfying. And he got tired of me asking, but that put me on a search because I was hungry to know God. And I wanted someone to give me some good answers. So I decided, okay, I became a Christian at age 18. I received Christ. You've heard my testimony. I went back to my church in order to reform it. I was going to change it. It wasn't easy. I first went with my buddy to his parish, his Catholic parish. And we, I brought my guitar, and we sang to the youth group, and we shared Jesus. Just let's love Jesus and have a personal relationship with him. Afterward, the priest said, I don't ever want you to come back to this church. You're never welcomed here again. And he closed the door and locked it. So that was strike one. Strike two is when I was invited to my own church. The local Monsignor asked me to come because he had seen a change in my life. And they were talking about it around St. Joan of Arc Church in California. And they wanted me to come and tell the priests and all the nuns in the synod why I was different. I said, great, I'd love to. Because they said, so many young people are leaving our church. We want to know what you have so that we can give it to them. Is it great? So, you know, I was Junior John the Baptist at the time. I didn't have much tact. <laughs> didn't have a whole lot of respect. I'm a little young kid, wet behind the ears. And uh, I had zeal, but it wasn't according to knowledge. So I know I made some mistakes that day. They stood up and they said, Skip, we want you to tell us what you have that you see we don't have that you haven't found here. And I said, I can sum it up in two words, Jesus Christ. They said, I beg your pardon. I said, what I mean is that I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I didn't have one before. I went to church before. My parents made me come to church. I did it because I had to do it. I didn't want to do it. I thought it was boring. And I gave my testimony how I came to Christ. And I quoted the Bible. And I told them they needed to be born again. That it's more than a church. It's more than a denomination. You need a personal relationship with God. You can't cling only to your tradition, only to your background. But if you'd receive Him in your heart, and if you're watching by television, I didn't do that far, but I just really got into it. <laughs> then a nun stood up. She knew me. She was one of my teachers. And she said, you keep quoting that Bible. That's unfair. 
And she said, you know, you're quoting all these scriptures. We don't know the Bible like that. I said, well, I think that's my point. Shame on you. You should know the Bible. It's the book. It's the source. I told you I had zeal not according to knowledge. <laughs> I kept going back every Sunday to church. I found every Sunday, each time I went, I was a little more unwelcome after my epiphany <laughs> and my debut a couple weeks before. I remember coming back and I had a Bible. Sunday morning I brought a Bible into the foyer of the church. And the usher stopped me and said, what's that thing? I said, it's a Bible. What are you doing with that here? I said, well, it's a living Bible. You want me to put it in a cage so it won't jump out? No, I didn't say that. But I said, it's living. No, I said, um, it's a Bible. Don't you think it belongs in church? Well, what version is it? Well, it was a King James Version, which is anathema. You don't carry a King James Version. So I got into trouble. Finally, the Lord spoke to me. And the Lord just showed me, because here I was trying to reform something. He said, Skip, did you find me in this system? I said, no, Lord, I didn't. He said, then why are you staying in this system? Because I want to change it. I want to reform it. It's, it's what I was raised in. Then I read a text that changed my whole approach to this because I meet a lot of people to this day who think I'm going to stay in the system in which I was raised in order that I might bring life to it. Jesus said, you can't put new wine into old wineskins. Because he said, the wineskin will burst and you'll break both the wineskin and the wine. will be lost. A system is like a wineskin. A wineskin in those days, you know, you'd store new wine in new wineskins because the skin was elastic. It would move with the, uh, the, the wine still was fermenting and the gases would cause pressure on the skin. It would expand. But if you put new wine, which is still expanding and fermenting, emitting gases into an old wineskin that had no elasticity anymore, it reached its limit. The wineskin would crack, it would burst, and you would break the skin and you'd lose the wine. So Jesus said, you need to pour new wine into new wineskins. And he was speaking of the system of Judaism that had become so narrow, so rigid, so inflexible even to their own Messiah. And if you know church history, you know that anytime God does a work, he goes outside the established work. Because it is so often the established work doesn't want anything to do with the new wine, the new work. So you can stay in it, well, I love it, I'm going to reform it, I'm going to change it. And usually you will have to compromise rather than changing the system. I have been asked over the last several years to, I've been invited to pastor churches around the country, sizable ones. They've lost a pastor. They want me to come and candidate and be their new pastor in a growing area. And they've got a growing budget and it's in a growing city, etc. And, and um, 
I look over what they're offering and what they're saying, and almost every time I come to the conclusion, if I came, I will be pouring new wine into an old wineskin. They won't like me. They might think they like me now because they hear me on the radio, but they won't like me. And why should I bust a church up by pouring new wine into an old wineskin? And it's not that they're wrong uh, or evil. It's just they're rigid in certain ways in their traditional background. Not all of them, but many of them. Now, Jesus was confronted with traditionalism. In fact, you ought to know that the worst collisions Jesus had, the worst confrontations, was not with the crowds, was not with Herodians, was not with prostitutes, was not with tax collectors, but was with religious leaders. Just like today, some of the Calvaries that have started over in Russia, they don't get opposition from atheists, from communists, from the police. They get persecuted by the Orthodox Church in that area who want to shut them down. And so Jesus was confronted so often, and Jesus' most scathing remarks were for the religious leaders, the seminary professors, the heads of the denomination, so to speak, who weren't adhering to the word anymore, but to a tradition. I want you, we've read this, and we're going to go back to it, but I want you to go back to a source. Go back to Matthew 15 for a moment. Let's look at one of these interesting confrontations of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, with the leaders of Judaism itself. Now, in this chapter, the confrontation is over washing hands. Okay, just let's just set it in its frame, in its context. Washing hands. Religious leaders have come all the way from Jerusalem to Galilee because they're mad that people don't wash their hands. Now, my wife is a clean freak. And I have benefited from it because I am, by nature, a slob freak. And she has altered my life greatly. I've been put through the fire. And I've changed for the better. So I've benefited from her cleanliness. But even my wife wouldn't walk from Jerusalem to Galilee to tell somebody to wash their hands. But the Pharisees do. The scribes and the Pharisees, who were from Jerusalem, Matthew 15, 1, came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now let me just give you here, since we read this, the first way to spot a traditionalist. A traditionalist always emphasizes the outward more than the inward. The outward more than the inward. Notice the accusation, isn't Why do your disciples go against the Bible? Why do your disciples break the law of God? Why have your disciples stolen? Why did they murder? None of that. The accusation is, you've transgressed the tradition of the elders. And it is qualified by, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. 
The accusation was not against their hygiene. It wasn't that they didn't use soap and wash off the germs. It was a traditional washing, a ceremonial cleansing to strip away defilement. You know that the Jews believe that Gentiles have cooties. <laughs> you knew that, right? The dust of the Gentiles itself is unclean, said the rabbis. If a Jewish male walked in the street where a Gentile had walked, the dust he had gathered on his garments and on his sandals had those cooties. And he had to go through a ritual mikvah, a cleansing. The washing of the hands was to remove defilement, ceremonial defilement. And so, uh, the hands were placed upward. That was the first step. Water was poured from the fingers to the palms and the back of the hands, and then it would drain off of the wrists and off of the elbows. But now, the water, having touched the defiled hand, is itself defiled. So, as soon as you would wash your hands this way, you would then have to reverse your hands, fingers pointing down, now pouring the water on the wrist and having the water drip off the fingers, always. It was performed that way. Strict Jews not only washed their hands that way before every meal, but between every course. That was the issue. It wasn't a legal thing. It wasn't even a biblical thing. It was a traditional thing. There was also a superstition, you should know. Some of the rabbis believed that demons, the demon Shipta, could attach itself to food. So you want to be able to get rid of all of the defilement of not only Gentiles or, or food that is perhaps a bit unclean, but of the possibility of being demon-possessed because demons can attach themselves to food. It's interesting. I don't know, maybe devil's food cake, perhaps? <laughs> Deviled eggs? I don't know. But there was that superstition. So this wasn't a hygienic issue, it was a ceremonial issue only. And that was the accusation. They emphasized the outward, not the inward. You wash or they wash with unwashed hands. <laughs> but he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? It's a good comeback. You've broken our tradition. We've always done it a certain way. We've always kept that ceremony. We've always sung those songs. We've always practiced it this way. Jesus said, why by your tradition have you used it to transgress the word of God? The commandment of God. They emphasized the outward. Jesus obviously emphasized the inward. Now here is the danger of tradition. If tradition supersedes the Word of God, it is easy to become smug because you have kept the standard, you've kept the tradition, you've kept the laws, you've kept the regulations. So you can develop merely by emphasizing the outward a false sense of security. I did. I grew up with a false sense of security. I'm saved because I've been baptized. I'm saved because I've been confirmed. I'm saved because I keep regular Mass and Holy Communion. 
So I had a false sense of security because of a human standard imposed. And as long as you keep the human standard, you're okay. Hence the feeling of safety, the parameters of safety, a false sense of security. Ooh, how unnerving then for Jesus to say, why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Look at verse 4. For God commanded, saying, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. You know what commandment that is. That's the fifth commandment out of the top ten, God's top ten list. Honor your father and your mother. But you say, here's the tradition, Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me has been dedicated to the temple, is released from honoring his father or mother. Thus, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Second thing a traditionalist does, number one, he emphasizes the outward. Number two, he adds to the word of God. He adds something to what the Bible says. It's the Bible, but that's no big deal. It's what I've added to it that becomes now important. The fifth commandment said, honor your father and your mother. The Jews had a practice called korban, or dedicated. So you could dedicate everything to God. You could make a statement, korban, it's dedicated to God. It's for the temple. Although you use it yourself, you just say it's dedicated. So if your mom and dad need help, Son, we need your financial help this month. Your mom and I aren't doing very well. Oh, Dad, I'd love to help out. But you know, my bank account is Corban. Savings account, Corban. BMW, Camel Train BMW, Corban. It's all dedicated. I can't give you anything because I've given it all to God. So they made up a tradition allowing them to escape the responsibility of honoring their father and their mother. Emphasize the outward, added to the word of God. Jesus says in verse 7, hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. The tendency of most all religious systems is to usurp the authority of the Word of God by its own traditional system. You must be a member in our church. You must be baptized by our elders in our water, in our facility, or you're not saved. So the emphasis is outward. They've added to the Word of God Instead of saying what really counts is repentance and faith in your heart, it becomes a matter of, well, do you have a letter from your church that allows us to receive you in our church? Are you a member of our denomination? Have you been baptized? Etc. It's their little gig that becomes important. Now let's be careful. Let's not get too smug in this non-denominational church we find ourselves in. Oh, we're so above that. Are we? Are we really? I suggest we have our own traditions. Oh, we might not be the old school tradition, but you know, if when we break our tradition of rock and roll band and we put a conventional choir up here, you ought to look at some people's faces like, 
acquired. <laughs> when I've worn a tie before, I have, some of you become unglued. Why are you wearing a, a, a tie? <laughs> what, do I always have to look like a slob? I mean, I like looking like a slob sometimes, but I like to dress up every now and then. What if I wore a collar one Sunday? Wouldn't that be a gas? <laughs> a big old robe? We have our traditions in reverse. Well, we at Calvary's wear blue jeans. That's the acceptable religious wear. Imagine if we went to pews, what you'd do. All of that is outward. It really doesn't matter. What matters is what goes against Scripture. Now, that is the background I wanted you to look at because that's sort of where it started in the New Testament, this traditionalism against this movement that started by Christ. Now, Paul the Apostle had a group of people, we've already talked about them, called Judaizers. These were not Orthodox Jews as much as they were Jewish people who embraced Jesus as the Messiah. They, they didn't... Um, um, uh, not embrace the Messiah. They did, except here was the problem. Jesus was the Messiah only for the Jews, not for the Gentiles. So if you wanted to be saved, you had to become Jewish. If you wanted to be a member of the kingdom of heaven, you couldn't just believe by faith. Oh, no, 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 no. You have to keep the law of Moses. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep all of the dietary regulations. In effect, you must become a Jew before you can become a child of God. That's what Paul was fighting, and they were fighting him. They said, what authority does Paul have? And Paul says, let me tell you my authority. I'm an apostle, verse 1, not from men, not by men, but from God. Then he says down in verse 7 of chapter 1, notice Galatians now talks about another gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you, who want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So what does Paul say? This is how he counteracts it, basically. I want you to know I'm an apostle. I didn't make it up. I'm not sent from a group of men. I'm sent from God. However, having said that, and having said that I got my message from direct revelation from God. Jesus spoke directly to me. I was tutored by the Lord directly from heaven. At the same time, Paul underscores that the real apostles, their idea, the real apostles in Jerusalem endorsed my ministry. They're behind me. So we're picking up with this autobiographical section then in chapter 2. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation. Those would be the real apostles, Peter, John, James, the guys who hung around with Jesus, those who were reputed as the leaders, the pillars of the church. I communicated to them that gospel which I preach among, 
non-Jewish people, Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, and I'll explain this in a minute, this is great, not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. When Jesus was crucified, something very significant happened that was assigned to the nation of Israel. Something tore. What was it? The veil. There was a veil in the temple that was a symbolic separation that said man can't get close to the inner sanctum of God when only the high priest could once a year. I, I'm not going over all the story. I figure you have that as your background. You know that. So the veil was torn. And God was saying, because it was torn from top to bottom, God tore it, in other words. God was saying, you, anyone, can come near, the book of Hebrews said, by the blood of Jesus Christ, not the blood of goats and, and bullocks, sheep, but by the blood of Christ, you who are afar off can draw near through the veil, intimate fellowship, direct covenant with God. You don't have to go through a high priest. You don't have to go through a priest. You can come directly to God and have a personal relationship. That was revolutionary to me. I don't need a priest. I don't have to talk to somebody who will talk to Jesus' mother, who will talk to Jesus and then to God. And then I can come directly to God through Jesus Christ. That's what the finished word, that's the gospel. That's what the finished work is all about. The sad truth. History tells us that the Jews, after the crucifixion and the veil was torn, went up and sewed the veil back up. Just like man. God says, come. Oh, no. Can't make it that easy, God. Let's sew that veil back up. Let's just make a few more obstacles. You've got to jump over this hoop, go through that thing, and then jump over that and then do that. Then, maybe, if we say so. Can you be a Christian? We love to sew back the veil. That's what the Judaizers were doing. This was a crucial point in church history. Now what Paul is referring to, the 14 years later, is 14 years after Paul had gone to Jerusalem, chapter 1 he had already mentioned, he met with Peter privately for a couple of weeks, and then he went out. 14 years after that meeting, a total of probably 17 years after Paul was saved and began preaching. He went up to Jerusalem again, this time because an issue had come up. Do you remember what the issue was? Acts chapter 15. There was a group of people who had come from Jerusalem to Antioch where Paul was preaching and saw what Paul was doing, saw what Barnabas was doing, and said, uh-uh, this doesn't fit with our tradition. It's not with our denomination." These people are not saved unless they get circumcised and keep the law of Moses. I want you to keep a marker here and just go back to Acts chapter 15 for just a moment. That's why it's great that you brought your Bibles, because if you didn't bring your Bibles, you'd be awfully lost about now. We can study them together and get it all. So remember, Matthew 15, Acts 15, Galatians 2. It all goes together. Verse 1, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren 
Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, that's a diminutive way of saying they got into a big heated argument over this, and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. That was 14 years after Paul had met with Peter and went out to Asia Minor. Now he's coming back. Verse 4, And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, this is a threshold meeting. This is a huge deal. Because if the council of Jerusalem said, well, you're right, that's true. I mean, after all, God gave the covenant to Israel, to the Jews. Everybody who wants to get saved has to be circumcised first. And if that would have come down as tradition, it would have been a whole different thing. And Paul said, I would have run in vain, because that's not the gospel he preached. So the apostles and elders, verse 6, came together to consider the matter. They were there. When there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. When was that? What's his name? Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile. And he sent for Peter, and Peter came and preached the gospel to him, and he received Christ he wasn't circumcised. He hadn't kept the laws of Moses. And the church of Jerusalem had a hissy fit. And said, look, look at the fruit in Cornelius' life. God told me to go. I went. Look at it. So he's reviewing how that the Gentiles had already, by faith, received Christ, the gospel. So God, who knows the heart, mark that contrast, the outward versus the inward emphasis acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. It made no distinction between them and us, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? I wish Peter were here. I'd hug him right now for saying that. The law, to keep all of the law, the regulations as it had come down through the tradition of the Jews, was a burden nobody could keep. Remember Jesus in Matthew 23 rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees, and he said of them, they bind heavy burdens, too hard to bear, and they put them on your shoulders, and they don't even lift one finger. It's impossible to keep those demands. But we believe, notice verse 11, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. I'd hug him again for saying that. Because it's not what we would expect. Usually being a Jewish gentleman of the covenant of Israel, we would expect him to say, and so we believe that they can be saved just like us. But he didn't say that. He said, and you know what? We Jews can be saved just like they can. 
He reversed it. The emphasis he places now on the grace of God. And so the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God worked through them among the Gentiles. So go back to Galatians. We'll finish it off. Verse 3, notice, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. I, I love Paul's strategy. Titus was an uncircumcised Gentile. Wasn't a Jew, didn't keep the law, hadn't been circumcised, and Paul offers him to the church at Jerusalem as exhibit A. Here is the fruit of the gospel that I have been preaching in Asia Minor. Look at Titus. Check him out. See if his life has been changed. See if he's a real Christian. He hasn't kept your laws. He hasn't gone through the ritual of circumcision. His conclusion then is salvation doesn't come by outward rituals like circumcision, nor baptism for that matter, which is another of Paul's statements in the book of Romans. But this occurred, verse 4, because false brethren, false brethren, secretly brought in who came by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage. These false brethren were probably A, Judaizers, or B, planted there by the Pharisees, some scholars believe. Let's say they were Judaizers. That means that they had a hybrid belief. They weren't traditional Jews because they embraced Jesus Christ as the Messiah. But they weren't authentic Christians because they held that you have to keep the law of Moses to be saved. So it was sort of a hybrid religion. Some scholars believe that these were planted individuals, unbelievers, false brethren, planted there by the Pharisees in Jerusalem to fragment, to fracture, to weaken the church in Antioch so that this new sect of Christianity wouldn't weaken Judaism as a whole all over the world. Let's just destroy them by causing them to fold from within. To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Paul dug in his heels. Paul stood up to these guys, didn't give in even for an hour, just said, nope, you're wrong, nope, not going to listen to it, nope, not even for an hour. He insists that we are saved by grace, through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, a finished work of Christ, not our own works. We can't add to it, we can't earn it. He didn't yield submission for even one hour. Freedom is the theme of this book. We are free in Christ. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed, Jesus said. At the same time, you will notice something. I'm underscoring this freedom bit right now, but later on, Paul will say in chapter 5, don't use your liberty as an occasion for your flesh in order to sin. Oh, I have freedom in Christ, man. I can do whatever I want. I'm covered by God's grace. So I can do whatever I want to do as a Christian. I can sin, but it doesn't matter because I'm Christ. Now that is a teaching called antinomianism, and that's wrong. If you're saved, your freedom to sin ends. You've lost your freedom to sin. 
right? Romans says you were slaves to sin. Now you are slaves unto righteousness. Are you? The freedom of the gospel gives you the freedom to say no to a lifestyle of sin. And Paul will get to that and underscore that later. But let's follow his line of thinking lest I become sidetracked and do little commercials here. Verse 6. But from those who, I love this, seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows no personal favoritism to man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Now you can hear some sarcasm, not just in my voice, but I am emphasizing because I hear it in his voice. Those who seem to be something were the apostles, the pillars of the church. Four times in eight verses he makes mention of them, and he does it in a way that even when we read it, tends to look like sarcasm, and I believe it is. He's not casting aspersions on the leadership in Jerusalem. He's not saying, I don't care who those guys are in Jerusalem. That's not what he's saying. He's directing the sarcasm toward the Judaizers who esteemed those in Jerusalem as being real apostles. They thought, oh, they seem to be something. So Paul uses sarcasm against those who made more out of them than they were. But on the contrary, verse 7, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, seemed to be the pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. There it is, Paul says. You want proof that I'm an apostle? Go ask the pillars in Jerusalem. The pillars who seem to be something recognize me as having a ministry to preach the gospel to non-Jews primarily, just as they have the calling to preach the same gospel to the Jews. And to prove it, they gave me the right hand of fellowship in the Near East. That is a welcoming sign. You know, we shake hands and go, hey, what's up, bro? You know, all the little things we do. It's just whatever. It's cool. Not there. A handshake means you are my partner. I receive you on the same plane and par. They were welcoming them into the service of the gospel. Verse 10, and we close. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. So the final outcome of this meeting was not a doctrinal adjustment, just a, a practical adjustment. Paul, as you go out, we just want you not to forget in your ministry, as God blesses you, don't forget the poor. The poor they were referring to were the poor saints in Jerusalem. That's why Paul took an offering from the Gentile churches and brought it to Jerusalem. Because in the early church of Jerusalem, they were suffering. This is what happened. People would come to Jerusalem, come to the feast, see the Christians worshiping, get converted, decide, I'm staying in Jerusalem. I'm not going back home. And so the city swelled with all sorts of people who now couldn't get jobs because they were owned by the Sadducees and the Pharisees who kept the temple. And the Christians were being persecuted. They were losing their jobs. So the church pooled their resources together, distributed anyone who had need, Acts chapter 2 says. 
But later on, that wasn't enough. That's why Paul had to take Gentile money and give it to the church in Jerusalem to help them out. We are mandated on a practical level as we preach the gospel to remember our poor brothers in Christ, to help them financially if they don't have the resources and we do. John said, if you see your brother in destitute or has a need, if you shut your heart to him, how does the love of Christ dwell in you? So Paul says, I was eager to do that. Wasn't a burden to me. Loved to do it. And he did. There's a great story, and I've read the letter, if it is indeed true, that is from a second century Greek writer who, in observing the fellowship of the early Christians, writes of them that they call each other brethren because Christ has put it into their hearts to do so, and there is no limit to their sharing with one another. When somebody has a need, they share to meet the need. He said there is such a brotherhood within the church of Jesus Christ. He said it's the most stunning example in all of the Roman Empire. That was the testimony of the early church. Loving one another, remembering the needs that each other had. So, you and I, were free in Christ. How were we saved? By tradition? Tradition, no. By our works? No. By our denomination? No. Well, I've been baptized. Wrong answer. Well, I've been confirmed. Ink. I've been circumcised. Ink. The only right answer is I'm saved because 2,000 years ago, the God-man stepped into our world and was crucified on the cross, and his blood was sufficient to get me to heaven. And I place my faith in him and him alone. And I don't trust anyone or anything else. And I received him in my heart as my Lord, as my Savior. And if you have, there will be a change. You will be set free to love him, to serve him, to commit to him, and to say no to sin. You're not saved by that. You're saved, and then as a result of that, the changes come. That was Paul's gospel. Because that was the gospel. Do you believe the gospel? Or do you believe, as Paul said, a perversion of the gospel? Do you rely on anything or anyone else? Or on Christ alone? 